You're listening to Grow Great, the podcast. Today, Dr. David Childs on Level 5 Leadership Traits, Part 1. It's Episode 10, Season 2021. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Cantrell. I'm your host here. The website is growgreat.com. Today I am rejoining Dr. David Childs, PhD, for a conversation about what Jim Collins refers to in his books as Level 5 Leadership. And David is highly qualified on high-performance leadership. In 2015, he published a book, The Organization Whisperer. 12 Core Actions That Ripple Excellence Through Your Organization. I encourage you to connect with David at LinkedIn. I'll put links to all of his stuff over at the website, growgreat.com. I encourage you to visit his website, theorganizationwhisperer.com. David and I kind of have an ongoing engagement. We continue to stay in touch with one another and In recent months, we've had these email conversations about leadership for quite a few months now, and today's show is really an outgrowth of some of those conversations, as today David is going to share with us his list of 10 traits that characterize Level 5 leadership the way he sees it. We discussed the first five in this conversation because these are the ones that David thinks deserve the most attention. These are the ones that, in his opinion, they get the least amount of attention. And we will cover the remaining five in part two of this conversation at a later date. Here's the list, and these are also over at the website, growgreat.com. His list is number one, inspiring vision. Number two, integrity. Number three, lives with a positive can-do spirit. Number four, partners with other positive excellence. Number five, measures efficiency and outcomes. Hope you enjoy the conversation. At the end, we'll put a bow on this and wrap it up. David, it's good to have you back on the show. I appreciate you being here, and I know that we want to talk about level five leadership skills today. So welcome back to the show. Yes, sir. It's great to uh, it's great to be back. You sent me these ten things. I I, I found all of them interesting, but I don't want to I don't want to hijack whatever thoughts you've got. So I'm just going to kind of turn the mic over to you and kind of let you dive in and share with our audience these 10 things that you've listed as these level five leadership skills. So start any way that you want to start. We started talking about uh, uh, level five leadership and uh, uh, level five leadership being uh, taught more. Uh, either just talked about, uh, uh, presented at conferences, or uh, level five leadership being uh, taught more at the university level in management and leadership classes, MBA classes, that sort of thing, because we were talking about the, 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 the shortage of level five leaders and the great need and the great demand for level five leaders. Uh, but that there weren't very many of them. They were kind of a rare and a, and a prized possession. And, and um, so was there a way to grow more of them? Was there a way to uh, teach and train and, 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 and develop and, and emphasize 
the development of more of them. <clears throat> so uh, that's how we kind of got into this. And the first thing that uh, uh, your listeners need to know for those that are that are not already aware is, you know, first of all, what the heck is a, uh, a level five leader? And uh, that is rooted in uh, the work of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the expert and the, uh, uh, the best-selling uh, writer about leadership, uh, Jim Collins. And uh, uh, Jim Collins wrote a series of books about leadership. Uh, two of his most famous were called uh, Good to Great and uh, Built to Last, um, and so your listeners uh, uh, can uh, uh, turn turn us off right now and just go get his two books, and they'll learn a lot more from that than, than from listening to, to me. But uh, at any rate, <clears throat> the question, and, and what he did was he said that uh, sort of almost like a, a Maslow, you know, Maslow had his hierarchy of needs, and uh, 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 Buddha had his, his ladder up to nirvana. And uh, so uh, Jim Collins had his uh, five levels of, uh, of, of higher, higher levels of leadership. And uh, level five leader is, of course, the, the top of the mountain and uh, the most, uh, the most uh, admired and respected and effective and, and desired level of leader. So uh, level five leadership uh, refers to uh, uh, Jim Collins is uh, sort of top of the mountain, highest, uh, highest quality type of leader. So with that as background, um, and based upon mine and your discussion about just the training and the development of level five leaders, um, I just did some thinking about, um, uh, in my experience, um, what are the traits of level five leaders? Uh, Not only did what did Jim Collins say, about the most desired and the most effective leaders, but what have other people, uh, Peter Drucker and, and, and other people in, in leadership, what have they said are the, uh, the most effective and successful traits of leaders? And then I also linked that to of those traits identified by the Jim Collinses and the Peter Druckers and others, um, which of those traits uh, actually get taught or get emphasized uh, in uh, management and leadership schools and which ones uh, could actually use a little bit more emphasis and a little bit more highlighting and a little bit more training and a little bit more of uh, telling the students. Um, you know, as you know, in education, there's a tendency to uh, uh, to teach academically rather than teach real world. Uh, you know, when I was in school myself, I studied French, and, and I hear a lot of people that take foreign languages uh, have the same complaint. They say, you know, I, I studied three years of Spanish, and then I went to Mexico, and nobody could understand a word I said um, because the textbook uh, taught professional, intellectual, academic Spanish from Spain, uh, not street Mexican in Mexico City. Um, And uh, I've heard the same complaint from lawyers about law school. 
um, you know, they go to law school and they learn they learn the history of uh, constitutional decisions about uh, about uh, what is freedom of speech and what is not freedom of speech. But uh, immediately after getting out of law school, uh, they get a real job and they leave their law office and they go down to the courthouse and uh, they walk up to the counter and they encounter for the first time ever the curmudgeonly old courthouse clerk who controls every second of their life. Uh, and nobody ever told them in law school, you better smile at the clerk in the courthouse because if you don't smile at her, she's going to keep accidentally losing your, your case files. Uh, you never get taught that in law school. And so what our discussion this morning is going to be about, hopefully, <clears throat> is um, we're going to talk about things that uh, uh, level five leaders uh, need to know on the street, uh, not what's being taught in Harvard Business School. But once they get out into a real company or a real organization of any kind, and they have to actually live being a level five leader, um, what are going to be the elements of that? So uh, that's the background of, um, of, and I've come up with a list of, of 10 things. Uh, I think the first five, I think the first five are the most, first of all, they're the most critical. And second of all, coincidentally, they may be among the least discussed academically, which is usually the, usually the case with academics. The more important it is, the less you hear about it in school. Um, and uh, then there's kind of a, of a lesser five that they, uh, they're, they're not quite as important in the scheme of things, but, and they also do get discussed uh, a little bit more uh, in, in school. So people uh, do get a little bit more awareness of them. So with that, uh, the number one item that I came up with as really separating a level five leader uh, from uh, leaders of various lesser degrees, and not that any of the lesser ones are bad. It's not, you know, even Jim Collins's number one level was of a was of a decent leader. He didn't start with he didn't start with level one as being fire this guy yesterday. Um, even his level one was a certain level of competence. But uh, to get from, say, level, what's the jump from level four to level five? And the number one uh, uh, determining uh, litmus test of a level five leader is do they constantly talk about and do they constantly focus on uh, and do they constantly prioritize uh, a, uh, an inspiring vision? Um, and uh, Jim Collins himself had a, a wonderful summation of this. Uh, Jim Collins said that level five leaders, they are personally humble, but results ambitious. They're personally humble, but results ambitious. And uh, a perfect example of that that I came up with uh, was uh, Gandhi. And uh, even while Gandhi was successfully and effectively leading 
and achieving Indian independence from the British Empire, which was his goal. That was his vision. His vision was independence for the nation of India. And that uh, uh, even while he was in the middle of leading Indian independence from the British, he would have uh, he would have negotiation meetings with uh, the British officials, and at these negotiation meetings, he Gandhi would personally serve the tea to the British officials. Um, and, and I mean, and he wasn't doing it as any form of strategizing or kissing up, or because he didn't need to kiss up. He knew that Indian independence was winning. He was doing it because just he, Gandhi, personally, as a human being, uh, was a humble human being, and he just personally enjoyed serving others. He considered himself uh, personally a humble servant, but he had monumental uh, visions and goals. And uh, so his focus was not on himself and attention to himself and praise for himself and people thinking how great he was, uh, uh, his goal was uh, the independence of the nation of India. And so that is the epitome uh, of a level five leader. Uh, And uh, whenever you see uh, someone behaving in that fashion where it's almost as if they themselves don't personally matter, uh, that what's important is some goal that they are just obsessed with, <clears throat> then that is the, uh, that's the first mark and the first sign of a level five leader. So, you know, one of the things that needs to happen in business schools and management and leadership schools is that uh, they need to start asking students while they're still in school, what's the purpose of your life? What's the goal of your life? What are you going to give your personal self up to and for? Uh, and, uh, that something like that would start planting the seed, uh, uh, with some students of, of, uh, how they need to think in a different way, how they need to turn the Rubik's cube over and how they need to change some of their priorities, uh, to, uh, uh to truly start on the path of, uh, of, of level five leadership. Um, I, I tell the story that uh, talking about uh, uh, organizations that have an inspiring mission uh, that is, of course, created because they have a level five leader that has created that inspiring mission and vision for the organization as a whole. And uh, one time I was uh, uh, standing in an airport and I was just looking out a, a, out a window and it happened to be looking out on the tarmac. And I was standing 15 or 20 feet away from a uh, Southwest Airlines uh, stewardess. And we had not spoken. We were just standing separately from each other, looking out at the tarmac. And uh, all of a sudden, coming in, coming down to land on the tarmac was the uh, Southwest Airlines plane that they had specifically painted the plane uh, to look like a killer whale. Uh, and and it was th- that plane was known as uh, Shamu uh, for the killer whale Shamu, and its purpose was to advertise that uh, Southwest Airlines did fly to San Antonio, and uh, it flew to San Antonio where people could go to SeaWorld and see Shamu. 
So here comes Shamu in for a landing and, and, and this stewardess, and she's not a CEO. She's not a top level executive. She is a bottom of the organizational chart stewardess in a uh, national and international airline uh, business under her breath to herself, not for my benefit or anybody else's, she goes, oh, here comes Shamu. That excitement, that investment, that passion in being a part of that, in being a part of the meaning and the symbolism of what Southwest Airlines, what that particular organization was about, and that degree of of just personal investment and passion by an employee of that organization is, is a level five organization. When you create that kind of investment and passion all the way down through an organization, uh, that's a level five organization and it takes a level five leader uh, to, to get that from the top to the bottom. And it's not done by any personal love of the CEO personally. It's done by getting everybody in the organization to buy into uh, a desirable goal and a desirable cause. So, uh, so, that's, uh, so that, that, that comes first. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of visions, uh, that are, that are legendary visions. Uh, uh, you know, Lincoln's, uh, preserve the union, preserve the union, save the United States as it is in its current form as a nation, uh, was an inspiring goal that was bigger than Lincoln himself. Uh, JFK's land man on the moon and bring him safely back to earth. Uh, that became an inspiring national project and national uh, goal that came to stand alone separately from uh, anything else that uh, uh, that JFK did. Uh, Disney, uh, I don't know if it still is their mission, but there was a time uh, years ago where uh, uh, Disney Corporation's uh, mission was make magic period. Come to work this morning. Every employee at Disney, I don't care if you're a waitress in one of our restaurants, walk up to a table and make magic for your customer at that breakfast or at that dinner. Um, And then the one that's come to be my personal favorite uh, uh, mission statement, it's from a big, it's from a big international hotel chain, I won't give them advertising by calling their name, but uh, a big uh, international hotel chain, their mission statement is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And I love that because can you imagine if that was the mission statement for all 6 billion people on the planet Earth? What if every human being on the planet Earth was actually motivated to treat everybody around them like a lady and a gentleman. Um, so it, 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 it doesn't get much better than that. So uh, uh, the, number one, uh, the number one thing that level five leaders uh, need to learn to do in, uh, in, in school and need to start living is giving themselves up personally 
for a bigger and uh, inspiring uh, mission or vision that will uh, make the world as a whole a better place and then getting other people to, uh, to buy into that and to pursue it. Uh, number two item, the, uh, the number two item is, uh, is integrity. Um, there's an old proverb that says, your actions are speaking so loudly that I can't uh, understand what you're saying. Um, and you need to walk and you need to live integrity. Um, people need to believe what you say. Um, and that has to happen constantly <clears throat> because uh, you can tell the truth 98 or 99 times out of 100. But if you tell a lie once or twice, uh, people are going to remember those and they're going to forget the 98 times you told the truth. Um, you have to live all day, every day, truth, uh, at least as you know it, and, uh, and integrity. Uh, when I used to lead organizations, uh, uh, I would have line level employees in remote offices who very rarely ever even physically saw me. Uh, I would go out and visit a remote office maybe about once every month or two. So the employees uh, never really got to know me personally, but I would get uh, emails from line employees in remote offices and they would write me and say, Mr. Childs, uh, what's the truth on this particular issue? And I would think, why do they, why do they have to ask a remote, unknown CEO what the truth is? Why can they not ask someone in their own office? And First of all, I, 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 I was humbled and I was honored <clears throat> that obviously I had developed a reputation throughout the organization and that obviously word on the street through the organization uh, was that I was a person that could be trusted and that I would tell people uh, the truth. Obviously, that's what had percolated through the system. And so I was glad to know that and, uh, and I was honored by it. Um, but by the same token, uh, I would visit with the leadership of those offices and I would say, you know, you've got people in this office that are uh, contacting the downtown office to ask what the truth is about something. And they really need to be able to do that in their own everyday environment. Um, maybe you should think about your culture here. And maybe you should think about um, uh, uh, giving the employees here more of a comfort level that they are living every day in a, uh, in a culture of integrity uh, in their own office. And so, um, and, you know, and the biggest thing is, if you're going to have people buy into the mission, and the mission is number one, the mission of Indian independence, the mission of preserving the union, the mission of landing a man on the moon. Um, you're spouting off monumental stuff. 
And the very first step in getting other people to buy into that is to think that you yourself actually mean it. Um, and if you tell two lies uh, out of out of a hundred stories, just those two lies are going to cause people to be cautious and to say, well, does he really believe in preserving the union? You know, he lied about these other things. How much is he truly invested? How much is he going to stay in the uh, in the foxhole with us when the going gets tough on uh, on on achieving the mission? Um, and so the the very first step in getting buy in on the mission is proving to people that you yourself really mean it, that you yourself, when you say something, you really have that integrity. And uh, so so that's number two. <clears throat> Number three, um, you have to literally live um, every second that you are at work, every second that you are leading your organization. You have to live and model a, a positive, upbeat, can-do attitude. Um, you un, unceasingly, you have to see rainbows and make lemonade. Every action that you take, every decision that you make, every facial expression that you have in a meeting or in an individual conversation, every choice of single words that you use must be constructive and positive. Uh, an atmosphere, a constant atmosphere of confident, can-do, calm, rather than fear and finger-pointing and panicking in emergencies, will permeate from you throughout the organization as a whole. And it will calm down and it will increase the confidence and can-do level of everyone throughout the organization. <clears throat> Um, I once had an employee that had worked with me for about 15 years uh, say to me one day, you know, I have never seen you get angry. And this was after they had worked with me for 15 years. Um, and I said to them, I said, no, because it is part of my job. It's part of what I am getting paid for to impart to you uh, a, uh, a sense of professional calm and can do. And then I said to this person, I said, what you never see is that I get rid of my angers and frustrations on my own time. Uh, I go jogging, I go swimming, and I, I, I do get frustrations, but I, uh, I work them out on my own time. Um, you know, there was the recent movie with uh, Tom Hanks portraying uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers, and it shows in the movie that uh, even saintly Mr. Rogers uh, went swimming every day uh, because Mr. Rogers had to let his guard down in private and uh, stop being uh, sunny, upbeat Mr. Rogers and and uh, let his own frustrations out. And sometimes he was even known to actually pound on his piano. Uh, so even Mr. Rogers has frustrations. Uh, we were all made that way. 
Uh, but it's part of the job of a level five leader to never let it show uh, on the job. It's, it's the job of a level five leader to create uh, an organization-wide atmosphere of, hey, you know, uh, we're, we're going to make tomorrow better than today, and that's all. We're, how do we make tomorrow better than today? And that's going to be my response to anything you bring to me. <clears throat> you know, you come running in here and saying, hey, there's a four-alarm fire in the office. And uh, my response is to very calmly look at you and say, okay, let's get everybody out. And while we're standing outside on the sidewalk, uh, somebody take a chief tablet and let's start drawing up plans for how we're going to rebuild the building even better than it is today. Um, and everybody in the organization needs to understand and have a comfort level that that's how you're going to respond to everything. So that's number three. Uh, number four, you extend that thought about having a constant positive and uh, can-do uh, 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 demeanor and atmosphere to everybody else in the organization. You spread that out. Um, and, and that starts with hiring positive can-do people. Even in, the, even in the process of recruiting and hiring, uh, you look for people that have positive, can-do, upbeat personalities. We used to just call them cheerleaders, for lack of a better way to put it. <clears throat> um, uh, we used to interview. Uh, we used to interview for people to join our organization, and we always interviewed as teams. Uh, we would always have three to five people on the interview team, and it would be people that were going to be the people that would actually be interacting with whoever we hired. And uh, after we had interviewed everybody, the very first question that I would throw out on the table to the interview committee was not to ask, well, who had the most years of experience or uh, who seemed to be the most intelligent or who seemed to be the most uh, knowledgeable about the particular skill that we're looking for. Uh, the very first question that I would throw out on the table was, uh, okay, which of these seven people do you want to live with 10 hours a day? Um, which of these seven people do you want to sit beside? Which of these seven people do you want in the lunchroom with you every day? Um, that's the top priority. And then uh, uh, everything else, the skills and the experience and all of that comes, uh, comes after that. So you're trying to extend that positive, upbeat, can-do, uh, make-tomorrow-better-than-today attitude throughout the entire organization. Um, you also promote that. When it's, time to, uh, when it's time to promote up through the organization, up into management, one of your top considerations is, uh, is this person, as a manager, are they going to live and model uh, a can-do approach as a manager to model it down to the line employees. You also extend it even outside of your own organization to the other organizations that you interact with. Um, if you have to deal with an accounting department or an HR department that is outside of your own organization that you don't personally control, or if you have vendors 
like the uh, like Xerox has to come and repair your Xerox machine or whatever. Uh, uh, every other organization that you have to interact with, you insist to those organizations, and we used to do this all the time, you insist to those organizations that they assign to you as their liaison to your organization an upbeat can-do person. Uh, your organization insists on that. We are an upbeat can-do organization, and that's the only kind of person we're going to interact with. Uh, we don't have time in our daily schedule for, uh, for uh, do-nothings or whiners and complainers. Uh, we want somebody that's going to tell us a joke, and when we ask them for something, they're going to say, yes, sir, we'll have it for you tomorrow. Uh, and that's all we're going to talk to. Um, so you create, not only do you personally model upbeat and can do, but you permeate that as much as possible. Obviously, it's never going to be universal, obviously. But uh, you get as high a percentage of your total organization from bottom, bottom to top and as high a percentage of the other organizations and vendors and partners that your organization has to interact with, you get them on that uh, uh, same page uh, to the full extent that you're able to do that. Um, so um, <clears throat> I, um, I had an employee one time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this through the rest of these, so I'll tell it here, but um, I had an employee one time, I was fairly new to this particular organization, and uh, we had an opening for a management position. And I had this one employee that uh, uh, staff had already told me that uh, this guy was uh, uh, a bad attitude, a negative person. Uh, uh, nobody else in the organization particularly liked him. Uh, he was a, a curmudgeon and a naysayer and a chicken little. And he'd been in the organization for about 12 years. And uh, so we had an opening for a management position. He applied for it. And uh, so we interviewed him. We let him go through the process, all of that. And uh, 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 we ended up uh, promoting uh, an employee into that management position who had only even been in the office for nine months. So we promoted into management a nine-month employee. So, uh, and, and also when we were interviewing, I had looked at this guy's 12-year file and I had noticed that in his uh, 12 years with the organization, he had never received a single customer compliment for anything. He had received uh, 15 written uh, complaints from customers, meaning customers that had taken the trouble to go all the way home, sit down, write up a letter and mail it in. They'd gone out of their way. They were so upset uh, to send in a letter. And uh, he had also received several years of uh, bad, bad performance reviews. So I had all those things in his file. So, um, uh, so I knew he was going to come storming in and pitch yet another one of his uh, tantrums. And uh, he goes, uh, so you promoted somebody that's been here nine months over somebody that's been here 12 years. And uh, so I looked back at him and I said, well, I'm new here. You don't know me very well, but that's going to continue to happen. Uh, we are going to promote uh, positive uh, can-do people who have a commitment to customer service. 
uh, and that's going to continue to happen. And in your 12 years here, I see in your file, you've got 15 customer complaints and you've got poor reviews for poor customer service. And this employee that we just promoted has only been here nine months. And in nine months, they've already got five written compliments from customers. And I said, as long as I'm here, that's going to continue to happen. So get used to it. Um, and, and, and so that's, a, that's an everyday real world example of, 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 of how you uh, permeate uh, that goal throughout the organization as a whole. Um, number five, and this is the last of what I call the big five, the top five uh, that, uh, that are the most significant and have, the, have really the most impact. And uh, they maybe get, uh, get discussed or are taught or certainly prioritized, not as much. <clears throat> and the fifth one is uh, measuring. Uh, measuring your organization's success and outcomes. Um, uh, recently, recently, you had another podcast. Uh, you had another guest. And I don't know if I'm supposed to say their name or not. Uh, oh, good. Uh, uh, Sherry Cheney Jones, uh, and I, I just deeply, deeply uh, enjoyed uh, your uh, your visit with Sherry. I thought Sherry gave some just uh, uh, incredible uh, insights, and I had the honor and privilege of meeting Sherry at a conference about ten or twelve years ago. And Sherry and I have stayed in touch uh, all these years, and and uh, I am deeply, deeply honored uh, uh, to even uh, have the opportunity to, to consider her a friend. But I was just so touched and moved by her podcast with you uh, recently and, and something that she said in it that I'm now going to steal and repeat because I'd never heard it before. And I just love it so much. Uh, Sherry said that measures are myth busters. And uh, uh, you, Randy, may remember when she said that. Yeah. Uh, and that, that just blew my mind. Uh, measures are myth busters. They make you deal with reality. And that's their purpose. Um, um, and I just told a story about the 12 year employee that I didn't promote. And I had the ammunition to tell them why. Uh, I did not allow them, I did not allow them to walk out of my office thinking, well, this guy's just a jerk and this guy just doesn't like me. And all of those personal excuses that, that people are often allowed to make, oh, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault because they don't like me or because they're prejudiced or, you know, uh, I mean, that's what I quite bluntly, that's what our society has recently become. Our society has recently become a bunch of excuse makers uh, that we blame our own failings on other people. Uh, and, and we let ourselves get away with it because nobody ever confronts us uh, with, with, with data about our own shortcomings. Uh, so we never, have, we, never have to, uh, we never have to deal with the reality of data. <clears throat> and uh, data forces you to deal with reality. Not only does it force employees to deal with reality, when you say to them, you've got 12 complaints in your file and no, and no compliments from customers, and so you're never going to get promoted in this organization until you turn that around, 
not only does an employee have to live with that, but also so does the CEO. So do you, the level five leader. And not only do you have to live with it, but, 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 but you have to have a mindset of where you're welcoming it. Gandhi welcomed asking the question, how close are we to independence? Where are we on the road to independence and what obstacles are still in our way and what do we still need to overcome? Uh, I'm sure JFK looked forward to the, his briefings on, uh, on going to the moon. And JFK would say, where are we on going to the moon and how close are we? And uh, what are the obstacles that we have left to overcome? And having very frank and open and conversations with integrity uh, and measures, measures help uh, document and verify uh, the, the integrity. So they, uh, they, they, they keep you on course. And level five leaders want that. And also, uh, the staff sees that. And, and that, that also imparts and deepens the staff's belief in the leader's integrity. Um, I've, had, I've had several occasions in my career uh, where I had um, uh, employee, employees, line employees, or my managers, uh, they'd walk in my office and, and some of them would utter a cuss word. They'd come in and go, damn, that's the stupidest thing you've ever done. Um, because we had created a culture in the organization where they felt like they could do that. Um, because I had imparted to them that it's not about me, it's about the organization. And we are about making the organization better. And when they came in my office and said to me, damn, that's the stupidest decision that you ever made. That was a conversation about making the organization better. And they were saying to me, you didn't do that. That decision that you made did not make the organization better. That's what they, that, that's the premise they were starting with because we had created that culture in the organization. And so I, my response to them was always calmly, and positively and constructively, as we've already discussed, I would say, well, go get you a cup of coffee, go get you a cup of coffee, come back with your cup of coffee, and let's talk about it. Let's revisit that decision I made yesterday, and because we can still, we can still tweak it, we can still improve it if that's what we need to do. So go get you a cup of coffee, come back, let's talk about it, and uh, let's make that decision better today and the organization better tomorrow. Um, and uh, that's what focusing on the mission, focusing on integrity, focusing on a positive attitude, focusing on making things better tomorrow, and with measures, focusing on making things measurably and documentably better tomorrow. That's what these five things do. Um, so uh, I'm just looking at a few notes here and... Um, uh, making sure that I'm just not uh, not uh, not missing anything. The thing that sticks out to me, David, is that you know, I mean, these are all these are all so congruent, and especially, you know, one one and five. When you first sent me these, one and five kind of kind of jump out. And you, I'm glad that you told the stories and you touched on it. You know, where are we? Where are we with this? And so many leaders seem to resent. They resent the troops wanting to know where are we at in this journey. And, uh, 
and don't want the don't want to don't want to impart the evidence as these as you examine these five and you look over the over your career and and all the knowledge that you've got what are some of the hurdles what are some of the big challenges i mean the first one that leaps out to me is ego and pride our own personal ego and pride that clearly gets in the way of any and all of these but what else well um and, and, and part of why we're having the conversation you and I are having, and, and part of the reason that I that I, I took our conversation in the direction of, of, of education and training is that uh, I think that one of the biggest hurdles is that we really need to start expressing very early on that these items, these items are going to become the new normal. That these items are be going to are going to become the new desired uh, traits, um, because it's very, very much like that. Like in, you know, that twelve-year employee that I had inherited, and, and I'm going to a little in a little bit a little bit later. I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to well, I'll talk about it now. I'll talk about discipline. Um, uh, discipline in an organization. Um, uh, I talk about there. There's basically two types of discipline. There is uh, one more time discipline, and one more time discipline is what happens about 95 percent of the time. And, uh, and and quite frankly, that's what our nation has become. Uh, we have become a uh, a nation. Uh, that has become accustomed to one more time discipline, which we all know never happens. Um, you know, you can burn down a house and they'll say, don't do that one more time. Something's going to happen next time. Or a child can steal something and somebody will say, well, don't do that again. You're going to get punished next time. I like to use the example of the child in the grocery store or in Walmart that is screaming so loud the entire store can hear it. And and invariably, if you go to the row where that child is and you see that child screaming all that's permeating the entire store, invariably that parent uh, is either totally ignoring it, not even that their parent is the only one in the whole store not hearing it. Or the parent is saying, one more time, one more time, one more time. Well, the child's learned that. The child has learned that nothing's ever going to happen. That 12-year employee that I had inherited, his entire career he had learned he can get away with being a jerk, both with uh, fellow staff members and with customers, and nothing's ever going to happen until it did, until it did. And the until it did is what I call Mother Nature's discipline. Uh, Mother Nature's discipline is uh, is known. It is known in nature that if if any of us go out in nature and if we do certain things, there is going to be a certain consequence. If we go out in nature and take all of our clothes off and roll around in poison ivy, we know there is going to be a certain consequence. If we go out in nature and we walk up to and swat a wasp nest and keep standing there, we know that there is going to be a certain consequence. Um, 
if we hear a rattlesnake rattling and we look around and we finally find where it is and we take a step closer to it, we already know what's going to happen. <clears throat> well, that is exactly what level five leaders do. Level five leaders, one of the very first things they do, and it's one of the very first things I had to do every place I went and every organization that I took over, because invariably I had to take over a mess. And the reason it was a mess was because there was absolutely no discipline, because everybody in the organization had learned one more time, one more time, one more time. And in fact, I finally, as my career progressed, I actually, in my very first meeting with, with, with managers in, in my new organization, it would become part of my opening speech. I would talk to my managers about one more time discipline and Mother Nature's discipline. And I would say to them, you need to understand, and you need to understand right now that we are moving from one more time discipline to Mother Nature's discipline. And there are now going to be some wasp nests. And we're going to have a couple of wasp nest victims uh, before people start to realize it. And to come back to your, your question, because this is actually, I've actually been answering your question. But what we've got to do is we've got to establish uh, Mother Nature's discipline as it relates to creating level five leaders. Because what has been learned. What has been learned in our uh, uh, promoting up into management and leadership throughout our country is that we are going to be impressed by and promote narcissists and, and self-promoters. Uh, the key to success, the key to success up through leadership currently is by promoting yourself. It's a political campaign. It's look at me, look at me. And if I kiss enough butts or if I take enough credit for work done by others uh, and or if I, uh, if I yell loud enough, uh, then I'm going to get the attention and get promoted. And I'll cite you a specific example uh, bringing us back to measures. First part of what I'm going to say is, is that for 30 years, for 30 years, when I have uh, dealt with a manager who said, I need more staff and I need more resources, my very first question back to them is, what are your three most common functions? What are the three things that your organization does the most? Generally, they could answer that one. And then my second question was, Tell me what is the average length of time it takes to do each of those functions. Tell me the average length of time it takes to do each of those three functions. And in 30 years, I believe I have had two people that have been able to answer that question. And then I've looked at them and I said, okay, so if these were the three things that you spend most of your time, resources, and staff on, and you have no idea or clue how long it should take to perform those functions, then how do you know you need more people and resources? And invariably, we will do a time and motion study 
We'll find out how long it's supposed to take to do those functions. And invariably, their staff is currently doing those things at double to triple the length of time it should take. And I'm not talking about at a sweatshop level. I'm talking about just at a normal workable, I'm going to do this job, uh, you know, for an eight hour workday at a comfortable level. We used to call it a B plus level. <clears throat> Invariably, people are doing the job two to three times longer than even that level because they know nobody's watching. They know because nobody knows, nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody's watching one more time, one more time, but nobody knows for sure. The second you come to them and you say, this should take two minutes. Not only that, but they immediately know it should take two minutes because they're the experts at it. They're the ones doing it. And as soon as you come to them and say, this should take two minutes, they immediately go, uh-oh, they're on to me now. And invariably, just that alone increases productivity at generally 25 to 25 to 33%. To just send the message that management now knows how long you should take, that increases productivity 25 to 33%. Now, <clears throat> so first of all, that's what measures do. Now let's come back to promoting leaders. Another thing I've invariably done in organizations that I've led is I immediately ask my managers on day one, I say, write down for me your five most productive employees. Who are your five best employees? And each of my department managers write that down for me. I take it back to my office and I put it in my measures folder because at the moment they don't have any, but I know we're going to create them and we're going to get them up and running. So I start my measures folder. And then over about the next six months, we create organizational performance measures. We start measuring uh, organizational performance. And after we've got about three to four months worth of monthly performance reports, I, and I've done this several times, I get out the three to four months worth of monthly performance reports for each department. And I look at how the staff is performing. I look at their absenteeism. I look at their customer complaints and compliments. I look at uh, how many widgets they're producing, how many phone calls are answering, how many errors they're making, documentable stuff. And then I go back and I pull out the original manager statement of who are their five best employees. And just as in 30 years, I've only ever had two people be able to tell me what was what were the time and motion numbers for their three most common functions that they're performed. Same as that, in my years, I have never had any department manager successfully tell me who more than two of their real top five performers were. Uh, when, it, when, when we started gathering data, when we started really gathering data and looking at who's showing up every day, who is producing the most widgets, who's answering the most phone calls, who's making the fewest errors, who's getting the most customer compliments, the managers had originally only picked two of those five at the most. And invariably, they were picking 
the, the staff member they go to lunch with that has weaseled themselves into becoming their personal best buddy. Uh, the one that uh, the one that goes just goes in their office the most and yaks at them. The one that goes in every morning with a cup of coffee and asks them about their grandkids. Oh, show me your latest pictures of your grandkids. Um, those are the other people on the list. And in American society, those are the people that we are currently promoting in the management. Um, so it's a popularity and, contest, more so. And, and, and everybody knows that. And I mean, it's like one more time. Well, one more time never comes. Well, who's going to get promoted? Uh, the person who draws the most attention to themselves. It's a beauty pageant. Um, and, and, and everybody knows that. And everybody sitting in a class in MBA school already knows that. Um, and so what has got to change, what has got to change is at that level is you've got to start saying to people in MBA school that when you get out in the real world, these are the new and different behaviors that are going to get promoted. Now, how we do that, I don't know, but that's the answer. How important do you think heroes are? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, when Michael Jordan came out and you, you, um, I don't remember. I don't think it was Nike, but it might've been Nike, you know, be like Mike, you know, be like Mike and boy, didn't every kid want to be like Mike. And if you bought, if you bought a pair of Jordan shoes, which I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I read, I remember reading that Nike's expectation is the first year they might sell about $3 million worth of sneakers and they exceeded a hundred million dollars. I mean, it just completely blew out, out sky high on them in popularity. And we know in culture that 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 happens. We know society really follows a popular culture in those kind of regards. And I would I would think that MBA students, and I don't know, having not gone to through any MBA program, and you're the PhD here, so I I, I bow to your intellect um, and your education. But there are so few heroes that do it, and yet some of the heroes and you've mentioned some of them, uh, both in politics and in, in organizational leadership. I mean, they're monumental figures. I mean, JFK is a monumental figure. Lincoln's a my Gandhi's a monumental fi Herb Kelleher at Southwest airline. I mean, these are monumental case study skins on the wall. The, the proof is in the pudding of what they were able to produce. And yet they still don't, I don't know. There still doesn't seem to be perhaps on the part of up and coming leaders to look at those people with aspirations to kind of follow in those footsteps. I, um, I think, you know, I, I said that, uh, uh, part of what a level five leader is supposed to do is, is make lemonade and see the rainbows and, and, uh, talk about how tomorrow can be better than today. <clears throat> I think something that, that can be helpful, and quite frankly, it already is being helpful. I'm already, uh, uh, I, I'm already seeing its impact and uh, is, 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 quite frankly, one example is this podcast. Um, I think technology and social media uh, is helping to plant a seed um, and 
uh, until technology and social media, quite frankly, in the last 20 to 25 years, uh, you know, it's still amazing when you pause and you say, you know, we've really only been in the world of computers or at least mass computers for 25 or 30 years. I mean, we, we, we still forget that. That's just, that's just staggering. Um, and what computers and technology has done is it has immensely, it has enormously uh, improved our ability to network. And b- before technology and computers, if you only had a handful of people who believed a certain way, about anything, uh, those people were never going to find each other. You know, if, if if there were only five people in the in, if there were only five people in the entire United States, I'm reading a book right now about bees because I I'm, I'm interested in bees. Um, you know, if you only had five, let's say five academics in the entire United States that they studied bees. And these five academics were starting to realize, hey, bees are dying out. I can't find bees out in the, you know, I'm, I, I've got these beehives out in the wild that I go and I sit and I watch with my binoculars. And hey, hey, in the last three years, half of these beehives have died out. What's the deal with the bees? And there's only five guys. Uh, and by the way, I say guys, and with me, it's generic. When I say guys, I mean everybody. So, you know, ladies, guys, dogs, cats, guys means everybody. Um, but if there's only five guys going out and realizing that bees are disappearing, and we are pre-computers uh, and pre-technology, and these five guys, they may not even know that each other exists. One of them's in Washington, and one of them's in Vermont, and one of them's in Florida, how do they get that word out? How, how do they put that word out? Well, uh, technology in the last 30 years has started allowing us to do that. Uh, this podcast is an example of that. And I have really started seeing in about the last 10 years, I have really started seeing on, uh, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on podcasts like yours, uh, uh, I have really started seeing uh, some networks of people uh, who are into uh, performance management, servant leadership, some of these kinds of concepts. Uh, I'm even aware now there's, a, there's at least a couple, there's at least a couple of uh, MBA programs that are specifically uh, MBAs, uh, specifically in the servant leadership philosophy. Uh, one of them is at uh, um, uh, the Turbo, uh, the Turbo University in uh, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, one of them is at uh, Gonzaga in uh, in Washington. And so they uh, they they have an emphasis specifically on servant leadership. And so technology is beginning to allow for the opportunity of a handful of dispersed people for the very first time to be able to find each other and and create a little bit of a cell, if you will, that can communicate out and expand out. And obviously it has years to go because we are still such a, you know, I mean, we're still such a small voice in the wilderness 
against the uh, the monolithic, uh, much huger uh, popular culture. So it's going to take forever uh, to get the word going. Uh, but I, I really I really see that it, it, it is at least starting. So that's encouraging. <clears throat> and the great thing about level five leadership, if if a CEO, so if anybody listening to the podcast who's a business owner, and it doesn't matter how big the organization is um, or how small the organization is, but a top, a number one, we'll call them a number one, a number one leader who has level five skills, it seems to me that in the workplace, aside from the schooling and the education, now somebody gets out of an MBA program, they get out of college, and they, they go work for that level five leader. I mean, that seems to me a career game changer because now you see it every day. You're living it, you're going to work, and you're witnessing it. And those of us that started our careers back when we were just kids, and you and I have talked a little bit about this, I know, off the air, you know, we – we learned we learned tyranny because our bosses were by and large were tyrants you yeah. know so we we learned how not to do it you know i i had to learn from people like you and from authors and just being a sponge with curiosity because i came from a place as a teenager thinking there's got to be a better way this this can't be the best way to do this because i know how it makes me feel and I'm sitting here busting my tail trying to do a good job and trying to be conscientious and, and being all the things that I, I think are right and I know that are customer service oriented and being a good coworker and, and all of that stuff. So I would think that being able to mirror, which is a long-winded way of simply saying, it's the reason we mean we need more number ones who have these skills because now in the workplace, you got a live breathing classroom where you can prove to your emerging leaders, this is the way to go. Well, and um, uh, uh, to 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 have the blessing of of getting to work for a level five leader, uh, first of all, is 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 one is one option. Uh, actually, I like to think that there's uh, possibly a, at least three options, uh, at least three options that I've identified. One is to just have the blessing of uh, having the opportunity in your life to, to get to work for a level five leader. And so therefore not only just the everyday blessing of getting to go to that work environment, but also the blessing of getting to learn from that level five leader. Um, So that's number one, number two. uh, And I think we talked about, about this in, in my last podcast uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to maybe not repeat some things that I said the first time, but I'll briefly repeat this one, um, is that uh, you, uh, even, if you're, even if you're a lower level line worker, like you said, you're just out of MBA school and you're in your first job and you're starting lower down in the rung of an organization, <clears throat> you can do what I recommended in number four, of, uh, of my uh, suggested uh, uh, character traits, and that is you create a network, you create a pod of like-minded people, whether it's fellow employees, uh, whether it's uh, uh, people in other departments that you interact with. But if you just decide, let's say you learned in, let's say you went to Viterbo and you learned, you learned at Viterbo, you got an MBA in how to be a servant leader, and you want to do that, and you go out and you get your first job 
at a, uh, you know, some Wall Street hedge fund, uh, which is, you know, the epitome of, of, a, of a tyrannical sweatshop. And you find yourself in this environment and you go, my God, what am I doing here and how can I survive here? Uh, even when you're lower down in the organization, you can start building around you a servant leadership culture and you create partnerships and you create a, a network of like-minded people and y'all start doing a few things. It, 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 it's creating a seed. It's creating a cell. Just like I said, that social media is beginning to help allow us to do one employee uh, lower down in an organization can start doing that. Uh, it will start succeeding and ultimately and eventually, even, even up the chain, the managers above them will start going, whoa, uh, 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 Randy is uh, Randy's one of our high producers. Uh, what, what's Randy doing? And they'll call Randy in and go, Randy, you're one of our high producers. What's your secret? And so then you tell them about servant leadership. Uh, so that's a second approach. Uh, that's a second approach. And by the way, I've actually seen I've actually seen that happen uh, because, as I said, in organizations that I've led, we have looked for people with a propensity to servant leadership philosophy in other departments. We've looked for people in a personnel department, or people in an accounting department, or people in the budget office that were servant leader type personalities. And in their interactions with our office, they would learn more and they would watch more how a servant leadership full culture would operate. And they would start expanding that in the personnel office they were in and in the accounting office they were in. And there were occasions in which I would stay in an organization long enough that I would actually see over time those particular employees that had interacted with our department, they'd never even been a part of it, but they'd interacted with it and then started adopting those practices, implementing them within their organization. They had either ended up being promoted within that department or they had gotten themselves hired away and gotten a promotion somewhere else because they had so impressed somebody somewhere uh, that it had benefited their career. Um, so, uh, so I have seen that. The third point I'd like to make about promoting performance management and servant leadership is that uh, 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 social media and our improved ability to use technology to communicate is increasing our ability to spread the word that, uh, that, 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 that using performance management and uh, servant leadership is actually beneficial. I mean, I, a few minutes ago, I just said on this podcast that the moment that you tell an employee, I now know you should be able to make this widget in two minutes, in that instant, their productivity automatically improves 25 to 33%. 40 years ago, I couldn't say that on a podcast. 40 years later, I can say those things on a podcast and there may be a hedge funder on Wall Street that hears that. Um, so that's the, that's the third way, uh, our ability to relate specific 
data-driven reasons for why doing this is in everybody's interest. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your time and your attention. You can find links to many of the resources and ways to connect with David over at the website growgreat.com. Find out more about me and all the work that I do at the same website. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend. If there's anything that we can do to be of service to you, you can reach us by way of the contact page over at the website. Grow Great, helping leaders establish and sustain high-performance cultures in their careers, teams, and organizations. My name is Randy Cantrell, coming to you from Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio.